Welcome to the Network Marketing Heroes Podcast, hosted by 40-year network marketing veteran, author of best-selling books, The Four-Year Career, and Mach 2 with Your Hair on Fire, and world-renowned speaker, Richard Bliss Brook. When it comes to success in network marketing, who better to learn from than leaders who have actually done it? Listen as Richard interviews top leaders and gives you a behind-the-scenes look at how they did it. You'll get incredible tips and duplicable actions you can do right now to build your own four-year career. Stay tuned after this episode for an exclusive discount code to get 10% off Richard's easy-to-use tools that will help propel your network marketing business to the next level at blissbusiness.com. Hey, everybody. Richard Bliss Brook here with yet another Network Marketing Gurus podcast. And today we have my favorite attorney. Does everybody have a favorite attorney? I have a favorite attorney in the network marketing community, and I snagged him for an interview today because he is going to bring a breadth of wisdom and light and fresh air and inspiration to all of us in the network marketing community in the form of pure education from the legal and business standpoint. And that's none other than Kevin Thompson, who is a network marketing guru slash attorney. Say hi, Kevin. Hey, everyone. Richard, thanks for having me on your program. It's an honor to be here. Well, uh, you're used to this because anybody who's anybody in the network marketing direct selling space wants to interview you. And you are the first person that we go to when anything happens, anybody gets sued, the FTC or the SCC or the FDA or the EPA or the SBCA, anybody with a three or four letter acronym in their name um, does anything. Everybody goes to your Facebook page, which by the way, folks, is facebook.com forward slash MLM legal. You're going to want to set your notifications on that page because when Kevin goes live on that page, something is happening. There is something deep to talk about in the network marketing community. He is, in my opinion, and most other people's opinion in the network marketing space, uh, the most prolific, the most wise, the most engaged, the most connected, the most astute attorney in the network marketing space. And his focus is not, you know, business contracts, and he can probably do all that stuff. But his gift to our profession is the regulatory affairs part of network marketing legal. And of course, that's our biggest nemesis, because we're a bunch of cowboys and cowgirls out screaming our heads off when we probably shouldn't be. And so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the regulatory environment of of the direct selling network marketing space. Um, And we're going to talk about Kevin's experience, which is interesting and deep and and comes from a place that you wouldn't expect an attorney comes from in the network marketing space, which is why he has so much wisdom. And uh, we're going to talk about his life and some of just the cool things he has going on. So the name of his firm is ThompsonBurton.com. So go there, check him out. Uh, He is a frequent expert on CNBC and Bloomberg uh, TV. And so we just love him because Kevin's the only attorney in the network marketing space that really gets our profession. And when you hear his story and where he came from, You'll understand how he gets who we are. He gets where our Achilles heel is. He gets where we get out of bounds and why we get out of bounds. He gets it from a corporate side, from a distributor side. He gets it from a regulatory affairs side, like he can see it through the eyes of the FTC. He's just deeply connected and gets our whole profession. And that's why he's our choice for network marketing guru. So Kevin, here's my first question, which we're going to start has nothing to do with network marketing. So we can get some context of who you are and how you ended up in that law office. Um, Tell us first about 
your family. I know you, you're a big athlete. Your wife's a big marathoner. You got four great kids. Who are you as a human being and where are you? Franklin, Tennessee. Franklin, yeah. yeah. Franklin is not Nashville. It's, it's about 10 miles away. Yeah, but that's a whole different demographic there in Franklin. <laughs> well, I've never been asked the question, uh, you know, as far as who I am on a personal level. So I really appreciate the question. Uh, you know, the family is the reason why I work so hard. I, I view our very survival on, on my ability to produce results for clients. I mean, I, I take it very personally. Uh, it, it wasn't until my son was born, which was 13 years ago, when I, when I really got the itch and, and felt the need to do my own firm and to start my own company. Because a lot of people, they want to tell kids what to do, right? But they don't do it themselves. We all want the, the younger generations to take risk and be brave and to push themselves, but we don't want to do it ourselves. And I made a decision very early that I want to be an example, even if it means I'm just going to be roadkill. Uh, and I've had some business endeavors that have been just disasters in those early days. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned sports. But one thing that I, I learned a lot about process and, and pain and struggle and effort and compounding, which is a concept that you very well understand. I learned a lot about those concepts uh, in my days as a decathlete. I did decathlon in college. And I was pretty good. I, I got All-American honors, which means I was a top eight American finisher in 2002. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of schools, an All-American would be the star of the team. For me, I was never the alpha because Tennessee, the University of Tennessee, was such a great program. We were a national champion program. And we had Tom Pappas was a, 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 a friend, still is a friend of mine, and he was a mentor of mine. He went to the Olympics three times. So I got my butt kicked by him every single day. And when he graduated, there was always there was a younger person that showed up that got All-American four times and would go on to win the national championship in 2003. And so I was always getting beat, uh, but still had to constantly work just to do the best that I could do with what I had. And I learned early just the importance of being patient and letting the process work and that you might be bad today. You might embarrass yourself today, but day after day after day, you know, training six days a week, three hours a day over the course of three, four, five years, you maximize whatever you have. And, and, and I take that into my legal practice. Uh, the lawyer that I am today is not going to be the lawyer that I am five years from now because I'm constantly looking for ways to push myself, put myself in uncomfortable situations. Sometimes I get a butt kicking, but I'm constantly learning and developing. And that, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Stephen Covey's Sharpen Your Axe. Um, one of my uh, mentors and good friends here in Hawaii, DeWitt Jones, says, uh, don't prove yourself, improve yourself every day. So one of the things I talk about in my coaching and training, Kevin, is, is compounding consistency. And it's kind of a play off of the compounded growth of a sales organization, the exponential growth of a sales organization. If you get regular and consistent duplication, what did you learn about uh, working out or practicing your art three hours a day, six days a week? How did the habit of that consistent practice compound in your skill level, in your ability? How did you see that layer upon layer upon layer of ability grow because you were consistent? It's a great question. And you mentioned layer upon layer. Uh, it's that slight edge. And there's actually a book titled Slight Edge, where <laughs> a lot of our competition, they trained hard too. But maybe it was two and a half hours a day and it was five days a week. They got Saturday right. and Sunday off. Uh, we only got Saturday off. And that extra, that little bit extra uh, just set the tone. And when we showed up at competition, everybody knew 
we were the best. And that, that little, here's how it would work. Uh, I, I think my, my old coach was one of the best decathlon coaches in the country, Bill Webb. And uh, he didn't always start off with great decathletes, but eventually the good decathletes found him and they, he was able to recruit him. And success begets success. And so he landed uh, a, a Brian Brophy who would be a national champion or an Eric Long who would go to the Olympics in the 90s and 96. And he was able to get these guys and they did really well in that system, which meant, which meant more good guys came. And the, the, expect, the expectation was just tremendous. And so just because if you show up and you, and you have talent, for me, uh, it, it helped that there was always somebody better because I had somebody to, to, to shoot for. Right. And if you slacked somebody off, to chase. Right. If you slacked somebody off, to be inspired by. Yeah, it, it, was, it was an example. Like this, this, if I commit, maybe I can be like this guy. And if you didn't commit, there were, there were some athletes that, not many, but there were some, they were a little lazy, right? They, they, they took a rep off. You knew who they were. You could feel it. And they were kind of isolated, right? I mean, the price of admission to being part of the tribe was you had to make some tremendous sacrifices. And if you didn't make the sacrifices, you really weren't part of the group. And so yeah. there, was, there was just a stream and a flow that was established that you just you hop in, you hang on as best you can, you do the work, and, and you were rewarded for it. So, ladies and gentlemen, think about that when it comes to building your network marketing career. We're going to get into some legal stuff, but you got some real juicy wisdom here about what it takes to excel in network marketing. You know, there's millions of kids every year that want to be successful, recognized athletes. They want to be national champions. They want to be, you know, top 10 but are, are they willing to do the work? And most of them aren't, right? So when we look at our income disclosure statements and we, you know, we hear these, you know, only 1% of the people that are in network marketing make any money. Well, what percentage are actually doing the work? My experience is if you do the work every day in a good company, um, you're going to eventually, sooner or later, you're gonna have plenty of success. The issue is whether or not you're willing to do the work. So you're getting these lessons from an attorney. So I'm curious, Kevin, how did you go from University of Tennessee athlete to network marketing attorney? What happened after law school or college? What led you here? Yeah, sure. Well, nobody goes to law school saying I'm going to be a network marketing lawyer. Right. People, <laughs> people, you know, just the ebbs and flows of life and it happens. But people say, I'm going to be a litigator. I'm going to be a contract lawyer. That they, they have an image of what a lawyer looks like based on what they see on TV. And they make these decisions. And, and I was one of them. I was going to be a litigator and help people. And I was. I was uh, uh, did really well in law school and uh, got, a, got a job at a good firm. And I litigated for two years. And then I realized you know, I was with good people, but it was not the right model for me. Uh, I, I just, again, this goes back to my experience with the track. It's one thing to climb the ladder. You have to make sure it's leaning against the, the right wall. And yeah. I, I realized really fast at my first firm, even if I get my name on the wall, I'm, I'm the person at this firm. They don't have great lifestyles or great incomes. And I thought I can do better. So I started to look at doing my own thing very early probably too early. And uh, at that time, I got a phone call from a, a person that you know, Robert Dickey, my brother-in-law. And that's how I became chief legal officer for, for one of, uh, for Orrin Woodward, who was one of Amway's top distributors. Yeah. Now, so yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. People got to just grab on that distinction. So wait a minute, there's actually a distributor whose business is so big, he's got his own chief legal officer. <laughs> it was massive. Yeah, it was massive. And he actually had a separate income opportunity associated with his business. Uh, hence that kind of the network marketing angle. <clears throat> there was some friction between him and Amway at the time. 
which is another reason why he needed an in-house lawyer to sort of manage that relationship. So I met the folks in Ada. I went to Michigan or I went to Grand Rapids a bunch of times. Uh, just really fast forwarding litigation happened where he was terminated. He sued Amway. Amway sued him back. It was just massive uh, unleash hell kind of effort. And uh, I, I got to hire the, the lawyers that helped, worked with them, got really good experience in that whole process. My son was born. And then there came a point where, again, climbing the ladder, but not much of a long-term opportunity there. Uh, you know, no potential to benefit from the growth of a new company, nothing like that. And right. like, you know what? It's time for me to take my destiny in my own hands, prove to myself that I could do it, prove to my, my kids, my, my, my son, my wife that, you know what? I'm going to go out there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch dinner and figure this stuff out. And then, so I started the law office of me uh, in an apartment just with a computer and uh, an invoicing software and very basic tools. And I, I didn't know the demand for, for a lawyer in the space back in, two, this was 2008, uh, really late 2007. So I didn't know the demand that was there, but I had a suspicion that there was a need for lawyers. There, there, there just weren't, weren't that many lawyers in the profession yep. at that time. So I created right. content, right? I was young. I was 20, what was I, 28? And uh, this is right when social media was, was starting to take off, when adults were starting to do it. So I was creating content that was spreading. People were able to see Kevin Thompson, even though I wasn't part of the community. I, I didn't kiss the ring at DSA meetings. I, um, but the, the content spread. My competition, they weren't doing anything because generally lawyers, they don't like to, to push out their thoughts publicly. Because that's right. And, well, when you yeah, have and you've done a lot of that. You've done a, a lot of writing, a lot of Facebook lives. Why do you do that? What's the motive behind putting out content for free to educate and inspire? Uh, because it's how I started. And I view it as uh, a, a very important mental exercise. It keeps me grounded. Yep. And so I'm reading a book about uh, Austrian economics. It's called the Tao of Capital. And there's, there's of course, a talk about Henry Ford. And Henry Ford obsessed about every piece of the business, uh, every part of the assembly line, every machine. And he, of course, had the stopwatch and he timed people. And it was always about improving the process. And he, he had a, a, a very micro management view of the process. For me, I think it's I think it's vitally important. It's sort of my, my my connection to the ground, skin in the game, so to speak. Where number one, if you want to uh, uh, learn something very well, you need to teach it. And so when there's a subject, when I get keep when when I, when I get repetitive questions about something in the industry, I think you know what now is a good time to really dive deep, go through that misery of the research and learn the details and then create content that people can understand. It, and, and that, in my opinion, gives me an advantage. It forces me into the material. Number two, re regarding the, the Facebook content, that's how I get feedback, right? So I, I push out a message, or, or sometimes it's as simple as a question. I've got 25,000 followers. I get feedback from real people that are experiencing real circumstances, uh, in real time. And I'm able to learn from that. I'm able to, to sort of shift my, my view on things sometimes or get a feel for what, what's going on, uh, uh, out there in the industry. Another boring example, you know, all this academic stuff, uh, you know, Hercules, one of his 12 trials that he had to do was he had to uh, wrestle a guy. I think his name was a, uh, I forget his name, Aesop maybe, or, something like that, uh, Antietam or not sure. That was a civil war battle. But uh, this guy got his power from the earth and he never lost a wrestling match. And how Hercules beat him was by lifting him off the ground and then crushing him, right? So when that guy lost connection with reality, lost connection with the earth, he was beatable. 
I create content, I do videos, I do Facebook posts because it keeps me connected to the ground. A lot of lawyers, they're just in an ivory tower, not, not all of my competitors, most of them. And, and these litigators at these big firms, they have no idea, none, what it's like to be in the field. They have no idea what the people in the field are thinking. For them, it's just theoretical. It's just yep. what they see in emails. It's just what they see in briefs. They don't see the disputes. They don't see the heartaches. They don't see the, 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 the stories behind the effort, right, in, in the field. I like it. Yeah, and unfortunately, they're, they're probably being coached and guided by the in-house counsel, which also probably doesn't know anything about what's going on in the field. Right. And the in-house counsel, of course, is probably, <clears throat> probably has a bias and an agenda of, hey, you know, this is what's really going on. This is what we want you to know. And, and what you have, Kevin, because you have a holistic connection with our whole profession is you have a much closer relationship with the truth, which is, you know, you got version A, version B, and then there's the version in the middle. You got the whole gamut. So it gives you much, much better wisdom when you're dealing with a client. So tell me about your clients, Kevin. Corporate Corporations in network marketing, the ownership, the, the corporate, the C-suite, that part of our business, from a regulatory standpoint, which basically, for those of you listening, means those government agencies that don't like how we do business and are always messing with us. So what is missing in the ownership suite in network marketing that we haven't done a better job of restoring our reputation. What, what's the thinking there? Like, who, who do you like and what do you like about some owners and what do you dislike about some owners and how are they like you and how do they keep getting in trouble and are there some that, that don't and what can we learn from them? There's a lot to unpack, and I think it's a fantastic question. First, uh, the, the, the kinds of people that I represent. Uh, I had an epiphany, might have been a year or two ago, where I realized I don't connect well with everybody, and I'm okay with that. Uh, there are certain companies with certain political situations, and uh, you know they get they reach a certain size where there's just massive pent up arrogance where they, they sort of know and, and they have a team of lawyers that are, you know, staffed employees and they, they tend to be a little insecure, candidly, not all of them, yep. some, and uh, they know everything. And so, you know, asking for help is sort of perceived as weakness. And so I'm not able to connect with some of these bigger companies. Now, with that being said, some of the bigger firms that do get that business, like uh, Kelly Dry is an example. Great firm. There's a great lawyer that I like there, John Villafranco. He leads the uh, American Bar Association panel on FTC and antitrust policy. Right? He does that sort of stuff. And uh, they are massively expensive. So right. there's a part of the market that he'll never get that I've got, right? The medium sized to smaller companies. And I think the business is actually better at the altitude that I'm at but he's able to get the massive companies. And so I really stopped pursuing those opportunities. You, you can't get everything. And I'm at a place in my right. career where I can be, you know, more targeted with who I want to work with anyways, uh, thankfully. To, to get to your question, uh, one of your questions, what are the owners missing? It, it depends. What comes to mind is, number one, uh, they, they lack a long-term view of, of, uh, of compounding. So a lot of owners, they want it now, and it's growth at all cost. And so what they'll do is it's faux compliance. The, the somewhat experienced people, they know compliance is important, but they'll just give it lip service, and they know that the rules are being broken. 
That's a very, it's very short-term thinking. And what happens is when, when a lot of founders, it's growth at all costs, they suck money out of the company. They consume it. And I don't see enough people investing money back into the company. And so they, they focus on their, their one product that they launched with. And, you know, they, they have a team of internal people, but they're just not really thinking long term and scaling their internal enterprise. And that's where a lot of founders really get screwed up. It's one thing to, to attract a field. That's really where all their energy is, where in reality, the field is a very important partner in the growth of the company. But you, you can't just give the child cake and ice cream every day. You have to be an adult. You have to have standards. And you also have to have an eye towards what I call building an enterprise, right? Building an office environment where you have help. There is a team of people and they meet for lunch every other day and they bounce ideas off each other. That's lacking in our profession, unfortunately, because it's so easy to spin up certain things and launch a company. But they don't want the responsibility of running a company, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, it does. I, so you've interacted with a lot of sales leaders, which is the other half of the equation. So, you know, almost always, not always, but it seems like the majority of the cases, the infractions, the violation happens at the sales leader level. They're the ones out there making claims. Sometimes the companies do it, which is really dumb, but. You know, so what do you what do you see in the sales leaders that you've talked to and worked with and listened to? What's going on with them that they still, after so many warnings and so much education and so many pleas from the other side of the industry, what's going on with them that they still make irresponsible claims? It goes back to cost benefit analysis. <laughs> and that's, that's what they do. They, 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 they measure the pros and the cons. And it's, it's, it's a, I think the term is uh, transfer of risk. Whereas if, if the rep makes an inappropriate claim, number one, what are the odds they're going to get caught? Right. Kind of small in a lot of cases. And number two, if they get caught, they don't really pay the penalty. It's the company that pays the, the ultimate penalty. Maybe a rep gets suspended or, or educated, in some cases terminated. But for the most part, termination is rare. And so there, there, I think there's an economic incentive for, for sales leaders to exaggerate because they're rewarded for it. Because unfortunately, uh, it, it tends to work when, uh, when you have a message of easy money, right? It appeals to people's lesser selves. Uh, which I think is actually one of the, the the biggest risks facing our profession. We can talk about that later. But uh, this need for immediate gratification, a lot of people have that. They don't want to think long-term. They don't want to think in terms of suffering and pain and struggle. They want it now. And so sales leaders are tapping into that. In some cases, not all. Uh, sales leaders are tapping into that when they promise easy money. That's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so clear and articulate the way you lay that out. They, they're probably thinking, what are the odds that I'm going to get caught? What they're not thinking about is, well, the odds are pretty good that the company's going to get caught for something I did if they're you know promoting baseless claims on social media. Because unfortunately, all the government has to do today is Google, you know, they can Google anything they want, you know, financial freedom slash name of the company. Um, you know, the current buzz thing that you've been reporting so brilliantly on is, you know, COVID-19 slash immune system slash name of the company. And they, don't, they don't have to regulate the way they did 20 or 30 years ago where they had to investigate. Now all I have to do is Google and they can see every hit, every claim in that category associated with that particular company. And the company is the one that's going to get the heat. And sometimes that heat costs everybody. 
right? Everybody in the whole company. Yeah, absolutely. No, so, it, uh, it, it, it depends on how bad. Uh, the FTC obviously has the tools to, to put a company out of business before the company even knows it's been sued. So it's, it's, it's dangerous. Uh, regulators, uh, Lois Greisman in particular, she's the head of their marketing division, something, something. She used this language, and this is language that I use. The, the model is a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to, to expand a network the way that we do. It's a privilege to be able to sell product through networks of people. With that privilege comes responsibility. And the way she's describing it, they're not happy with companies properly policing the field. So for the longest time, companies have really sort of just said, hey, we can't control these knuckleheads. Well, you, you can't benefit on the one hand for uh, overstatements and improper income claims and disease claims. You can't benefit on the one hand and then say, well, it's not my problem on the other. It's very much your problem. And so companies, I'm encouraged in the sense that uh, I think companies are starting to see the importance of, of educating the field of what to do and what not to do. And they're, they're trying to monitor what's happening out there. They, they understand that M word is very important monitoring. It wasn't really a thing three years ago, uh, which our, our, our friend Jonathan Gillum has really cornered that market with a software where that's, that's their sole function is to monitor claims. So uh, I'm seeing improvement. And also, I'm, I'm seeing improvement from the uh, on the consumer side that the, the people that join companies, they're looking for more what I call trust signals. Like they know what scammy short term looks like now. So they're looking for more stable, secure, uh, uh, more resources. They're, they're looking, they have a better sense of what is uh, superior out there in the market. You're, you're seeing fewer crypto scams, for example. Right. Yeah. If the market's immune. So if you could wave a magic wand, Kevin, you go into a company, any typical company with too short term of thinking and infractions in the marketplace that is trying, as you said, they're trying. If you could wave a magic wand over the entire profession or just one particular company, where the whole concept of try is thrown out the window and let's just do it. Let's just spend whatever percentage of our total working capital money, you know, bandwidth, time, energy, not just on growing the company, but growing it in such a way that we protect the growth and we also protect the business model. What are some of the things that you would have a company do right now and do it fully and completely like full-on execution to ensure like the opposite of try but actually ensure compliance along with continued growth what would you mandate if you could yeah I think a lot of the bad behavior you see in the field is a symptom of a, of a, of a disease and uh, the disease and, and some companies it's, it's lack of value in product. And so if, if you have, if, if, if the field is ill-equipped with product, if they have bad product, they have to cheat. They have to make exaggerated income claims to recruit and they have to teach the importance of getting on auto ship and recruiting people to get on auto ship. And so number one, invest money in good R&D. Like stop, you know, every founder, there, there's not every founder, a lot of founders have this arrogance about them where they think that they can just place a phone call to a product formulator, hey, what's the next hot thing? And they can just private label it and sell it. Really thinking through product because if it's good product, you can get customers, right? I call it, it's a keystone habit, right? It's, it's a habit that leads to other consequences down the line. Uh, you can have good customers and you've talked about this a lot, made a really good impression on me, actually, the importance of retention. If retention is improved, you can exponentially change your destiny over a, a two year period. So improving yep. customer sales, improving retention really hinges on strong, strong pro uh, uh, product value proposition. Number one, number two, I'd say it's uh, <clears throat> having a, uh, a hard look at the compensation plan design 
and not revamping it. I'm not suggesting that, but looking for ways to reward uh, better habits, right? Not just rewarding your big recruiters. And I believe you wrote about this in your manifesto, but rewarding people that sell stuff, right? I mean, Uber and the gig economy, they accumulated 48 million people in a five-year period, right? In our profession, we've got less than 2 million people. We've been around for 130 years. And they don't have any seven-figure earners. They, you know, they, 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 they don't. And our, our plans make that possible. But I think there's a bigger need in our market to get people to 500 bucks a month as quick as possible. Yes, so finding yes. opportunities in the plan for that, I think, is the holy grail. Yep. You're so right. People don't quit when they're making $500 a month. And the biggest challenge we have, we actually don't have a recruiting challenge or a customer acquisition challenge in our profession. Some companies are better than others. The problem in the customer arena, just like you said, products are mediocre and they're overpriced. And so we have a retention problem. Right. And and then on the distributor side, we don't have any that big of trouble recruiting people. You know, what are some of the DSA quotes? We bring in almost a half a million people a week around the world into network marketing. The problem is almost all of them quit. Why? They don't make any money. They don't quit because they're not making seven figures. Right. They quit because they're not making 500 bucks. Yeah. And it's an easy fix. So what do you think the biggest challenge is for our profession right now? Like what's the big uh, elephant in the room? What, what do we have to hunker down and do something about? What's so, the heavy lifting? This is where, you know, it's more opinion and less analysis. I think there's an idea virus somewhere in the culture. And uh, maybe we're all part of the problem. Maybe it's the young folks. But the idea currently that I'm seeing is that markets aren't supposed to go down. Markets can only go up. Uh, If I experience struggle in my professional career, it's not my fault. It's the system's fault. It's the process's fault. And in some cases, there are systemic problems. Uh, But with the younger generation, there's this feeling of, and I'll I'll use the word entitlement, where, uh, you know, this concept of universal basic income, I'm not saying it's a good idea or bad idea. I'm not trying to get political here. But this idea that everybody deserves a basic amount of income, regardless of of the value that you produce, just by breathing air, uh, that idea is growing. And you can say that the idea of capitalism, where in order for capitalism to work, people have to believe that it's fair, that if you do the work and you take the risk, you're rewarded. And a lot of people don't feel that it's fair. They they view the bailouts on Wall Street. They view the, the, the airline companies that did whatever they did and bought back their own stock and they got bailed out, bailed, out, ugh, bailed out by taxpayers. People see this stuff and they're thinking, this whole capitalism thing is bullshit. So I think it's an this idea is really gonna be a challenge for our profession because our profession is about taking risk and assuming uh, responsibility, taking ownership of results. If you fail, it's because you didn't try hard enough or didn't learn enough, that, that idea, I think there's more information on the other side, meaning, no, you failed because you're a victim, right? Network marketing just by nature isn't fair. Uh, you, 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 sh- you should have kept on, you should have held on to your, you know, $500 that you lost. Right. I think that idea is very, very dangerous. And I don't know how we overcome that as a profession because it goes to the very heart of, the, the fabric of our country. Yeah. And, Which uh, is moving towards everybody gets a ribbon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, I am. and actually the definition of fairness is everybody gets the same thing. That's, and that, I think that idea is pretty dangerous and that that's going to hurt us. I don't know how we fight against it. Uh, I tell people, you know, to, to, <clears throat> to open up a franchise, a cycling studio franchise, it costs 
$500,000. That is not an exaggeration. $500,000 to open up a cycle bar franchise. And that's before you make a single dollar. And franchising, there's protections and disclosure laws and all that stuff, but that's whatever. Disclosure, the disclosures in these documents, who knows if they're accurate or not. My point is, you want to change your life, period. It takes risk. And in network marketing, suppose somebody gives it a go and they, they don't make the money for whatever reason, bad program, or they just, they're not very good, for whatever reason. Maybe they're out $2,000. Maybe. At least they didn't blow a half a million. <laughs> so I, the risk reward that our profession offers is compelling, but... It's a form of virtue signaling now to, to sort of protect what they're called victims, right? I care about people, so I'm going to protect them. And, and, and they're not losers. They're not failures. They're winners that got scammed. You're going to see more and more content like that. And yeah. that's going to hurt us. You're dancing very, you have, you're very light footed dancing around the liberal uh, conservative political agenda. That's quite adept to you, Kevin. I didn't realize you could tiptoe like that. Nice work. My my whole goal is to piss everybody off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I hear you. And I think that's such a powerful message because the network marketing model is, is like the purest form of free enterprise and entrepreneurialism and Hey, right. You know, nobody's doing anything for you in network marketing. You had to do it all. And yet you have so little at risk and you're right. The regulatory culture in our country is protect everybody from themselves. And yet, You know, if we were coaching people on how to live your life and develop your life and develop your strengths and and create adventures, just like you said, you know, you went out just to demonstrate to your kids, hey, this is this is what's possible and this is what it's like. And I may, you know, be a yard sale on my lips, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to rebound. I'm going to I'm going to pick myself up by the bootstraps and go at it again and go at it again and go at it. That's a message a certain segment of our population leadership wants to give America. And unfortunately, there's another America that wants everybody to stay at home, duct taped to a chair so they can't lose $500 or skin their knee or say they tried something and failed. And so, you know, that's a, that's a place for us to fight. I think in network marketing is fight for the free enterprise opportunity fight for fair is the compensation plan. And everybody has the same comp plan, same product. You either go build it or you don't. So where do you see the profession in the next five to 10 years play? As we wrap this up, play futurists. Don't go negative on me. These, <laughs> these interviews are supposed to inspire. I don't want everybody to quit my podcast because you like doom and gloomed them. What, what do you see for the next five to 10 years? How do we need to play the game We'll be in business in five, five or 10 years, and, and, and there will be growth. Uh, the, the good news is the Federal Trade Commission, if they had it their way, they would change the law uh, because there, there, there's, a, uh, a, again, there's an idea over there where if people fail, it's not their fault. It's a systemic problem. Whereas as an athlete, I know that's, that's not the case. So, uh, but they can't make the law, and so our profession is going to be fine. And what I'm seeing, I'm seeing good things. I'm seeing e-commerce trends growing. We've been doing that for years and we do it well. Uh, I think that uh, the need for economic opportunity is going to grow where, where people work remotely and work from home. You're gonna see more people moving out of big urban environments and trying to find ways to supplement income. 
So I, I see various trends that I like. I like where I'm positioned personally as a, as a professional. Uh, I'll be honest, in early March, when things got weird with the pandemic, I didn't know. I was worried. But now I'm, I'm, I'm fairly excited because we survived that, that pandemic. And I, I understand it's, it's still going on and there's still risk. But it just shows how resilient we are. This is a gritty group of people. And I, and I remember telling my wife that in mid-March. You know, my, uh, uh, to, to draw on an earlier point that I made, I was never the alpha in track. There was always somebody better than me. Walt Burton of Thompson Burton, he's better than me. He's a phenomenal lawyer and uh, just a, a good man and, and, and good at what he does. He does commercial real estate. And so his business really depends on, you know, money from the sky, right? Federal Reserve, interest rates, that sort of stuff. And he took a hit, not a big hit, but he took a hit. I told Sharon, you know, the people that I represent, they're gritty. They're going to yep. find a way. Yeah, uh, they're going to they're going to create opportunities for people that need it. And so I'm bullish on our profession uh, over the next five years. I think the best years are ahead of us. Uh, but we just we have to be intelligent with how we number one, you have to recognize the enemy for what it is. And the enemy is this this idea of entitlement and this this form of virtue signaling where they just want to protect everybody that loses money. Uh you know, I'm a big believer in education through experience. And sometimes that means you get your butt kicked and you learn yep. from it. Uh, I was, I was in Amway long, long time ago, made a little bit of money, but the stuff that I learned was valuable, valuable. I attribute a lot of my success to those days in the trenches back, back then. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bullish. Yeah. Well, me too. And doesn't mean it won't change. This profession's different than it was in the 70s, different than the 80s, different than the 90s. Every decade brings, you know, a little different flavor. But like you said, I think that's really profound what you said, Kevin. You know, here with no notice at all for anyone, all of a sudden the business environment in the United States, North America, around the world is just halted. It just comes to a screeching halt, like every live event on the books, including national convention with tens of thousands of people and millions and millions of investment at stake. All of a sudden, all, that's all over, right? And, and then, you know, okay, so now how do we direct sell? How do we word of mouth market? And... And yes, of course, people could go digital, they could go online, but people were so freaked out in the month of March that I think a lot of people were just frozen. But look how the profession pivoted. Now there's a permanent change we see in, there's not going to be such an addiction in the future to live events, which are very costly, human capital, uh, actual capital, the time, the attention, the stress, and companies are, are getting a tenfold viewership at a tenth the cost just by doing stuff online. That's a permanent breakthrough that's going to save a lot of management uh, health and welfare. It's going to skyrocket our profession. And like you said, we're going to get better at at e-marketing e e and digital marketing and social marketing. And why? Because the pandemic forced us to, and we don't cave as a profession. We, we have grit. Really, those are huge nuggets, Kevin, in your final words. I do want to tell you, though, that I heard you say that because of the pandemic, the opportunity is better. And so I have that recorded. It's a very timely claim where you use the pandemic to make, I think, an income claim. Did you hear that? I did hear it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're referring to the FTC, you know, singling out companies that are leveraging the pandemic when they're promoting an income opportunity. And, uh, but here we're not promoting a particular company. Yeah, I know. Um, I know. Just I'm in, just, just giving in general. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, um, 
as you can tell, folks, there's a lot here, a lot of depth. You probably are listening to this going, wow, I could spend a couple of days asking this guy questions and I would learn a mountain full of not only network marketing distinctions, and but just life and business and leadership and courage and ingenuity. You're a great man, Kevin Thompson. I um, am honored to call you a friend. And a, and a colleague in this journal journal of of um, capitalism in its purest form. Thank you so much for joining us on the Network Marketing Podcast. And remember, folks, you can set your notifications for facebook.com forward slash MLM legal. So when Kevin goes live... You want to be there because something's going on. Thank you, Kevin. You're welcome. The feeling is mutual. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Richard Bliss Brooks Network Marketing Heroes Podcast. If you are inspired and are ready to create your own success story, then it is time to take advantage of some of the top network marketing tools available. Pick up the top recruiting tool that has prospects saying, yes, the four-year career and the four-year career for women. Get your mindset right. Without a clear vision, success is lost. Check out the best-selling book on vision, Mach 2 with your hair on fire. Learn to think like a successful person with this step-by-step -step guide on how to break through your self-imposed limitations. Mach 2 Vision Training is a 90-minute four-part video training where you get Richard to walk you through crafting your vision. It's a must for anyone looking to step outside the box and hit the ground running. For 10% off your order, use the discount code HERO at checkout. If you're serious about building your business, make sure to subscribe to Richard's blog for all the latest tools and articles. This success story is not typical. It is meant to inspire you and show you what's possible. It is not what you should expect to accomplish. Your income will depend entirely on you, your commitment, your work ethic, your leadership, and your ability to acquire customers and inspire sales leaders to join your team. Most people who start off intending to build a sales team do not maintain their motivation to continue.